Hello, my name is Declan Dineen. You're listening to Subcity Radio. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each week, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have forged connections, games that have inspired them, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Shahid Ahmed. He is uh, probably best known to most people as the the indie champion at PlayStation. He was part of a team that helped basically change the, the landscape at Sony and, and turn it into the, the rich ecosystem for indie games uh, that exists today. Uh, in fact, like uh, Shahid has come up on the show a few times before. You know, If, if you want to go back and listen to all the episodes, there's an episode with John Ribbins, who created uh, Ollie Ollie, and Kirsty Rigdon, who created uh, Velocity 2X. And, and both of those... For both of those people, um, Shahid was uh, a pivotal person in their life. You know, he greenlit their games. He he set their careers going. Um, but even like eight, eight with that, like honestly, he he's led such an extraordinary life in games, and he's he's covered almost every aspect of development and production, and he's won it all and lost it all. And you know, from being this kids basically a teenager who who was coding in his bedroom and self-publishing atari and spectrum games um i i i find it incredibly well inspirational is probably the right word that you know at age 55 he just he's decided to uh leave his his role at sony and go back to development you know he has this passion for games and he wants you know it, it's still burns within him he wants to make games it's it's a brilliant chat i I hope i hope you enjoy it Uh, as always if you'd like to get in touch you can email the show it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter it's at checkpoints show and on facebook it's uh, checkpoints podcast because it's very important to have consistent branding i'm not even letting that little cough get in the way of uh that terrible joke, which I will not, uh, I will not stop doing. Um, thanks again for downloading the show. Um, it's always hugely appreciated. Uh, it's even more appreciated when you share it via whatever means you like, social media, um, word of mouth. All of these things are hugely helpful to help you know build the audience for the show, and is massively appreciated as always. And rate and review on iTunes. Um, I'm not as convinced that that makes as much of a difference. I certainly don't notice it making uh, as much of a difference. But but do that if, if you feel so inclined. It makes certainly makes me feel good. Um, I actually discovered this week that uh, if you use the, the Overcast app, I, I use Overcast uh, to listen to podcasts on, on my, uh, my iPhone. Uh, I'm one of the recommended Games and Hobbies pod- podcasts, uh, which is wonderful. I thought that was just for me and my friends because we share similar tastes but no apparently that is universal so thanks uh, to them and also you should use the app it's brilliant <laughs> that's i'm getting really shameless now i'll stop it um i'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new guest but until then on with the show
It's a crazy day. All sounds very exciting. Very exciting. Um, so for the sake of, I mean, as I mentioned in the emails, this is mainly just a, a casual chat, but for the sake of formality, I'll do like a, a, a regular introduction. So Shahid, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm Shahid Ahmed. I am um, a very old man. And uh, <laughs> I've been in the video games business. Uh, it wasn't really called a business when I started, but let's call it a business now because it's definitely business oh, now. absolutely, since, yeah. Since 1982, I started off as a developer and um, I've come full circle to being a developer again. I've done a lot in between, of course, but that's that's how the story um, started, and that's how the story continues today. You started in 1982. You look so young and fresh-faced on all your social media profiles. Oh, I love you. <laughs> no, you really do. I'm not. I'm not just saying <laughs> that to be uh, to be flattering. Oh, I, I can assure you, I look a lot older in real life. <laughs> I'm that's sure we all do. Recent, yeah, it's a relatively recent picture. And what I tell people, because I always hear this, of course, not not to be vain or anything, but uh, all of the aging has happened on the inside. <laughs> okay, well that's that's good. Um, you were you were one of the the few guests that have been um, good enough to send me a full on crib sheet, which is very exciting. Um, I, I've only received a couple of these, and I'm always fascinated purely from a a kind of. I'm just nosy, basically. I like to see the games people play. The, the one guy sent me um, a spreadsheet. He keeps a spreadsheet of every game that he plays, and and he notes how far he got through and whether or not it was completed, which I thought was amazing. Um, but let's go back to the start. So, um, am I saying your name right? I'm saying Shahid, and you said Shahid. It's Shahid. Shahid. So, yes, perfect. You got it. Wow, one take. Well, you know, I'm I'm a semi-professional. Um, <laughs> what was what was your your very first experience of a video game? I'm not sure, but I think it was it was one of two things. It was either Space Invaders, and I'm talking about the original Space Invaders, at a friend's B and B. He lived in a B and B with his parents. His his parents ran a B and B, and so they had this arcade machine which did regular rotation, and the first thing they had in there was Space Invaders. And it was just so incongruous. This, it, was like, it was like, imagine a really um, dingy bedsit. This wasn't a dingy bedsit, by the way. God knows why you use that as a metaphor. It's way too close, <laughs> isn't it? But imagine a dingy bedsit that has a Cray supercomputer in there. You know, how incongruous that would seem. No, totally, that, yeah. That was a contrast. It was like someone had punctured a hole in the space-time continuum <laughs> into this this place in the 70s you know which had 70s decor and there's this piece of the future sitting in in the uh, back of a hall somewhere so it was either that and i would like to believe it was that or alternatively um it was one of those binatone i'm not sure it was binatone it's probably something else uh, much cheaper one of those multi-game devices that you got from argos you know yeah just uh, basically about... just pong but just lots yeah, of variations yeah. of pong Exactly. Pong, Pong 2, Pong 3, you know, Pongalicious, whatever. Um, it was it was great, but we had to return it because, you know, we didn't really have an awful lot of money and uh, my mum couldn't see the justification in hanging on to it. And 
frankly, uh, neither did I because Space Invaders was way cooler. So I'm I'm going to say Space Invaders, and the reason I think we returned the multi-game machine was because it just wasn't anywhere near as cool as Space Invaders. Yeah, I mean, you've got the whole experience. Was it a proper Space Invaders cab as well with the amazing like art on the side and things? Yeah, yeah, it's a whole kit and caboodle. And so, where where in the country is this? Let's let's uh, put ourselves in a place. This was in um, Paddington, just off Parade Street. Oh, well, very specific. Um, yeah. So, were you? Like, that seems quite heartbreaking to get the... I mean, you said you didn't mind so much because, you know, it's not as good as Space Invaders. But were you were you then hooked? Were you like, okay, so how can I get this? How can I get more access to games? Or was it just still, like, a novelty thing that, you know, oh, I'll, I'll play when I can? It was a novelty at that point. I mean, it was, you know, it was just so futuristic that it was pretty hard to get your head round what was going on and I was quite young so I think maybe I was I don't know 13 14 something like that maybe even younger actually yeah yeah come to think of it I was probably more like 11 or 12 wow that is going back and that I mean that that's a a perfect point to like a bit I mean this is I find this really interesting that it's come up on the show a lot is that a lot of people I've spoken to have been like a specific age and so like at least over 30. Um, and so the the journey with video games is at some point in your youth, video games happen and it's like a new thing, which is like the, the current generations, they've just grown up with games. They've always had them. So the fact that, you know, this this kind of like the obelisk in, in 2001 or something, just suddenly this whole new world is opening up around you. It's just, it's amazing. That's a good way of putting it, I think. The obelisk. It, yeah. it was transformational. You know, at first you're you're sitting there with this bone and kind of picking away at it, and after a few minutes you realise this this bone can break stuff, and you start mashing it and jump up and down in joy. So yeah, it's very much like that. It took it takes a bit of time before you understand the potential or um, the magnitude of what's just happened, and then when you do, um, it's all thus break Barasustra, isn't it? Yeah. So what was your, your sort of next experience or some of your formative experiences? What was like your first home console or computer? Or... Um, we, apart from that cheap Binatone copy thing from Argos, I think I got one of those handheld things that had really primitive displays and moved objects around a character at a time. Like a game and watch or something? No, it was before that, and it was a it was pretty big. It was, I don't know, the size of maybe an Apple Newton or even bigger. But it was obviously a, a lot earlier than that. Yeah. Um, and again, it would have been one of those Argos things that got returned, and it was absolutely awful. You know, one one character cell would turn on, and then another would turn on, and the last one would turn off, um, and there would be persistence on the display. So. You couldn't tell what the hell was going on. So that, that was one. And again, it was it was kind of a tease compared to that original Space Invaders experience um, or the, the Mooncrest experience. You know, there was a really big divide between what you could get in the home and what was available in these um, arcades. The arcades were just spectacularly different. 
So I think, yeah, I remember begging my mum and dad, but particularly my dad. My, my parents were split up. Um, and I begged my dad for an Atari VCS because that was just the one to have, you know. Um, and he just didn't get it um, in in every sense of the word. So he didn't get one for me and he didn't understand what I was asking <laughs> for either. So that that was unrequited love right there. But then the first machine I actually got at home was um, an Atari 400. And, you know, the, the story leading up to that is... It's kind of odd because I didn't really like computers that much. The only thing I liked about computers was I'd gone to some um, some show and tell. I think it might have been at Honeywell with the school, and okay. and computer engineers um, reputedly earned thirty grand a year, which of course was um, an impossible amount of money to a kid who'd grown up uh, single parent family on a council estate. Um, you know, wearing hand-me-down clothes. It was just preposterous money. And I thought, you know what? I like the sound of that. It wasn't computing itself that appealed so much as the potential of the money you could make in that field. And it is, you so, know, you, you can't escape the fact that it is linked to games. Somewhere in your head, you're making that connection. Like, that's why I was interested in computers as a kid, because they played games. You, you can't help but make that leap. I didn't at first because you know we're talking about ancient history right so um uh, you have you have to bear in mind i am creakingly old <laughs> so we're going back to the dim and distant past where the computers we had at school were like you know the research machines do you remember those i don't know probably not. No, of course you wouldn't would you because you're a normal human being and not ancient had so a these BBC research in school. machine things sorry had a bbc in school oh so did we eventually um, so this is pre-BBC. Yeah, yeah, it's black and white. I think I had a 64 by 64 block display. Um, it was a big breakthrough when we got a 5 megabyte Winchester drive, which was about 8 or 12 inches. It was just ginormous. You know, it was this piece of impossible high tech. Um, and <laughs> it was boring. You know, it didn't really do games. So the games thing with home computers didn't hit until... Uh, a few years after I was introduced to computing. So one of the first home computers that I remember hearing about from my friends was the ZX81. But again, that didn't come anywhere near what we were seeing in arcades. So there was still this big divide. You know, it was it was an unattainable thing. It was just out of reach, this, this world of arcades. Yeah. Then there was the uh, Spectrum announcement. And that's when my world changed. Uh, this is back in 81, 82. I can't remember exactly when, but a friend of mine gave me uh, the, the Spectrum leaflet. And <clears throat> I, I fell in love. I looked at that thing, color graphics, 48K of RAM, you know, um, is beyond my dreams of avarice. It was an impossible amount of RAM. I thought, okay, color <laughs> graphics, bit of sound. This, this micro drive thing looked like it was just dropped off uh, a, bl a black obelisk. Um, you know, this this is it. This is amazing. This could be being able to make um, games or play games because to begin with, it was about playing games, right? I could play arcade games in a home because that's what it was all about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so I went away and I looked at that uh, leaflet um, and studied it endlessly and, and I just got the bug. So I, I went out, read loads of the magazines, found out everything I could. You know, 
did the whole uh, uh, OCD thing, totally obsessed about video games and um, computing and what was possible. And then I realized that the best machine at the time was probably the Atari 400, not understanding that it was going to be much harder going down that route because there was no real UK scene around that. Yeah. But hey, I was 16 years old. All I cared about was this thing ran Star Raiders and Star Raiders was the only thing that mattered. So somehow, I don't know how, I managed to convince my mum, who'd never bought anything worth more than about 10 quid for me in her whole life, um, to get me an Atari 400 uh, with a cassette player and a Star Raiders and basic cartridge. I mean, we're talking about, I don't know, 400 quid plus. It's a lot of money back in 1982. For oh, absolutely. A, you know, for, for an immigrant mum, the only Asian family on a council estate, you know, poor as you can imagine. And and she's forking out all of this money, splashing it on her credit card, and and that's it. That's when everything kicked off. And well, you know, it clearly paid back. off in the in the long run. Well, for me, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned this quite a lot on your your crib sheet. You mentioned Star Raiders. I've never heard of Star Raiders. I'm sorry, we can't continue this conversation. But like, what? I mean, I've looked at it since. But where, like, where was your? Was that purely an Atari game? It wasn't like an arcade um, conversion, or was it? No, no, it was purely um, <clears throat> an Atari game. And it's probably the most, say probably, I, for, for me, the most impressive feat of software engineering in the video games world in history. Not just up to that point, but beyond. I've never seen it surpassed. An 8K cartridge filled with you know a 3d galaxy it does it's very reminiscent of elite like purely from the screenshots yeah elite came after uh elite had more memory to play with and uh elite scope was much more expansive and it was also more um formal in its application of 3d um but star raiders preceded it by by some way and was you know, in terms of engineering, getting all of that into an 8K ROM, just just impossible. The sound, uh, the graphics, it was it was as close as you're going to get to arcades in the home at that point. And that's why I had to have the Atari, just because of that game. And did it live up to your expectations? <clears throat> it exceeded them massively. I became utterly obsessed by Star Raiders. I mean, I was so obsessed. You know, there's um, there's the whole damage system in that game. And if your flight computer got damaged, then when you went into hyperspace, the crosshairs would start to move about, right? But if your, if your flight computer got damaged, you no longer have the crosshairs. So steering through hyperspace would become very, very difficult. So what I did was I got some gaffer tape <laughs> and I gaffer taped my black and white screen to line up with the center of where the flight computer's um, cursor was supposed to be. So if I lost my flight computer, I'd still be able to navigate through hyperspace. That's how obsessed I was by that game. I'd leave it on um, constantly. And um, yeah, I, I don't think anything has has quite grabbed me the way that game did you know it's like your first love you know absolutely yeah and was this something that was shared like i mean 
I get the impression that your your mum or dad weren't particularly interested in it, but did you have like did you build friends around this sort of community, like the video game fans, especially then, because it was still would have been extremely niche. Yeah, there wasn't really a community, you know. Uh, the closest you had to a community was uh, magazines. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, this is pre-internet. It was a couple of years before I got into um, bulletin boards and that kind of thing. But just, I mean, like on the estate and stuff, were there other kids that you play games with? Oh, God, no. They they hated us. You know, we were the only um, brown-skinned people, I was going to use the word that they use for us, on the whole estate. So everybody hated us, and we were routinely bullied and abused. So in a way, it was a great escape for me. Uh, it was a great way to get away from from that hell that we lived in. Um, but, you know, I had friends from school who were really into it. And interestingly, the closest friends I had at school around computing are the friends I still have to this day. So so that was great. And, you know, they, they were um, into it earlier. They, you know, they were into it ZX81 time. But to me, it was never about the hobbyist angle. It was never about tinkering. It was more about how can you get these arcade video games into your home? Yeah, absolutely. And Star Raider seems to be the perfect example of that. So, so where do you go from there? <clears throat> well, I thought, I like this, but how about making something like this? So the next thing really for me was teaching myself how to program. And I remember being inspired by the story of Greg Christensen, who was a 16-year-old like myself, um, but unlike me, he'd taught himself assembler, this exotic thing which I knew nothing about, and in doing so created a game called Caverns of Mars, uh, which of course was recently riffed on by Jeff Minter in his um, Caverns of Minos, I think, on iOS, which is just a lovely, lovely throwback. But yeah, it's um, a beautiful fine-scrolling, vertical fine-scrolling game on, on the uh, Atari through Atari's APX program. And he got 25 grand for it, as US dollars. Now, for a 16-year-old, that is an obscene and unimaginable amount of money. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to have to learn Assembler. Because my first few efforts hadn't used Assembler. I'd been learning to, to program, been using BASIC. It just wasn't cutting it, wasn't getting me the results I was seeing by other people. And got myself a copy of De Re Atari, which is one of the best books on um, hardware programming and exploiting uh, a system to its fullest ever written. Chris Crawford uh, co-authored that along with a bunch of other people. He's a previous guest all... on the show. Really? Yeah, Chris came on the show. He was brilliant. Wonderful. I'll have to listen back. He's he's my hero. Oh, he's um, and he is still to today as amazing and eccentric and wonderful as you can imagine. He was He was terrific to talk to. I remember he, he wrote a story once about um, AI and U-shaped lakes, and that has informed my programming discipline ever since. Do you know the story? I don't know. So basically, he was working on some AI, and um, U-shaped lakes were causing some severe difficulty. And he tried to program his way around this and eventually realized that the best solution was just to get rid of the U-shaped lakes. And... That really has informed my programming philosophy ever since. 
you know, the, the path of least resistance. It's the most obvious lateral thing. You know, why are you trying to hit your head against this brick wall? Most people won't care. There won't be people out there going, this game's absolutely fantastic. But you know what? If it had U-shaped lakes, it'd be loads better. <laughs> so so that was wonderful. But also just his, his writing style, um, the work he put in on Eastern Front and how he taught the world how to find scroll. Nobody else could find scroll. You know, this is before the Commodore 64. The Spectrum didn't have um, the the power to do smooth scrolling at 50 or 60 hertz, but the Atari did, and he showed everyone how to do it with Eastern Front. So, yeah, he was a very early hero for me, and he, I guess, helped teach me assembly language without realizing it. And things things went on from there. So did you make your, your game? Well, I made several. Um, and my, my first published game sold zero copies. Oh, so you did get them published, though. So this wasn't just like a hobbyist thing. Oh, you, you really went, oh, okay, self-published. Yeah, everybody self-published. You know, this new um, self-publishing phenomenon isn't really that new. It's been around forever. Um, it's just gone in and out of fashion as, as business has scaled. But yeah, back then you stuck a, a classified advert um, in the back of something and you were self-publishing. Uh, but yeah, I sold zero copies, so that taught a 16-year-old a valuable lesson in marketing. <laughs> but it didn't discourage you, clearly, so you, you kept on no. at this. And was this always, yeah. did you sort of stick with the Atari for a while? I did, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the best, I think the best thing I did was moving to uh, the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 and I did that thanks to uh, Nick Alexander, who worked at Virgin and who wrote really nice rejection letters. It's always good when somebody in authority writes your rejection letter. I had the opportunity to thank him at a recent event where I was a speaker and he was in the audience. And uh, yeah, I, I called him out and said, uh, you might not remember me, but um, over 30 years ago, you sent me some very sweet rejection letters. And if had you not done that, I might not be where I am today. That is what 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 was the the sort of tone of the letters? Was it like this is good? Here's how you can make this better, or was it just you know keep at it? No, it was it was very different. It was look, I like your ideas, but on the Atari graphics need to be really really good. Why don't you try a more commercial platform like the Spectrum? So I took him at his word. And was that uh, was it quite easy moving back? Because I, I'm imagining like assembler. A lot of Spectrum stuff would have been much more basic, like quite literally. So was it quite easy to move back into that? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, once you get the, the basics, once you understand the principles, I, I was not one of these people who, um, who, who was partisan. I didn't really care about any of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> I think that was more of a uh, consumer perspective, but as a programmer, I just liked programming, and I liked all of these different devices and assemblers, and it was another opportunity to learn. So it wasn't a problem at all, and I got pretty good at it. So had you already, by this point then, you, the way you're talking, it seems like you'd kind of moved away from, once you sort of made this decision, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and make some games, that you sort of changed your, your viewpoint and, and how you approached games. So would you still have been like an avid consumer and a big fan as well? Yeah, God, yeah. I mean, I was still buying games. I mean, I've always bought games by the truckload, you know, as, as much as I could afford. Um, less so recently, 
but I haven't needed to. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, in, in the early days, I was. I was buying games by the absolute bucket load and being inspired by them, thinking, how can I reproduce this and how can I reproduce that and this looks cool and, you know, try, just trying to reverse engineer stuff. Yeah, I mean, but nevertheless, that is that is a very different view than, I'd say, most people playing games. I'd say, you know, they'd be approaching them just like, you know, can I get the best score and all that? But to, to sort of, from that young of an age, to start picking apart, why does this work? What what Why does this make me feel good and stuff? I mean, I think that informs much of what you went on to do later. You know, I think you're the first person who's kind of, put it that way and i hadn't appreciated that before so thanks that's a good point actually why didn't i just stick to playing them instead of thinking <laughs> how can i make stuff wow but did you I, like I not appreciated that you're, you're quite right because but... there are loads of people today who play games who don't necessarily go on to become games programmers right to me it's the most natural thing in the world but you're right it's, it's oh no it's never occurred good. to me i just i play yeah. them for fun right okay and i see I'm I'm gonna have to go back and rewrite my life story now. Because... <laughs> <laughs> but wow, so, like, thanks. did you did it become like your your main goal? Like, did you go off to university in the hope of you know I'm gonna make games, I'm gonna learn more computer languages? I didn't go to university, and uh, my dad was unhappy about that. And the reason I didn't go to university was because I got bitten by the programming and um, and video games bug. Um. <clears throat> I was supposed to be working on A-levels, but instead I was making the Commodore 64 version of Jet Set Willy. And I was also, um, I was at that time, especially during my exams, utterly obsessed by Sabre Wolf and Jet Set Willy. Both those games, I think, pretty much cost me my A-levels. Actually, the truth is I'd lost my A-levels a long time earlier when I started bunking off so that I could program but this would have been I, like during the big boom. So it's just, you just need to make that one game and that's it. You're kind of, you're set. Yeah, it never really happened that way. Um, <laughs> but I mean, Jet Set Willy was a big breakthrough for me. You know, that for, for a kid, that was a lot of money. Um, but I didn't really see it as a career. I was just doing something that I really enjoyed. And there was no concept of this whole video games thing becoming bigger than than a, than a hobby um or or something that was not widely respected because you know back then i mean all right we we have image issues now but you can imagine back then there was no image it was just this fringe thing nobody oh, understood yeah. that it was going to become a scene so did you so what did you do then so during these this time when you you would have been going off to university and stuff were you just all in on video games like you know yep. getting whatever so yeah. systems you could and stuff yeah totally i mean uh the the spectrum the 64 uh the atari the amstrad um and then moving on to i mean it, i even had a jupiter race for crying out loud um <laughs> then i had uh you know uh, the st the uh, amiga the amiga is my favorite uh computer of all time um, and then PCs and basically anything. If, if it could run a game, I wanted it, really. Um, there are a few notable exceptions. Uh, I, I didn't want a Dragon, uh, even if I got paid. I didn't want um, an Oric, even if I got paid. I don't know why. That was about the only prejudice I ever had, and I can't really quite 
put my finger on why. So were you making any sort of a living from it, though? Yeah. God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was I was a, a teenager getting around London in taxis, eating in decent restaurants and buying whatever the hell I wanted. I was, you know, former um, uh, poor kid living the life of Riley. It was really quite a spectacular change. And from being um, a despised, and I won't use the word that, you know, the, the kids use for us, but being a despised brown person of um, uh, apparently Pakistani heritage <laughs> who, who spoke better English than anybody on the estate. Um, from from that person to one of the most popular people on the estate, all because I'd found something that they found aspirational and I'd made a living out of it before any of them realised it was possible. So that's quite a transformation. That must have felt brilliant. Like, yeah. that must have felt really good. Yeah, it did. A little bit it, disingenuous on their part, but still. That didn't bother me. And funny thing is that it never has. I mean, it's it's really easy to become bitter and judgmental uh, about such things. But I found very often that people, when educated um, in some way, or if you find some some rapport with them, that all just goes away. And you just connect on a human level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is it's always just pure ignorance, uh, unfortunately. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what, like, what were these, what games were you making? Was it, like, conversions and stuff? Like, what? <clears throat> um, a few original games to begin with. Um, then Jet Set Willy was a conversion onto the Commodore 64. Um and um, I guess my first really big original was Chimera, um, based on, I say based on, I wanted to rip off Night Law. When I first saw that, it was just the most profound um, step change. In That's what like I the was possible isometric spectrum. sort of dungeon yeah. game, yeah? Yep, yep. Of course, I'm talking to you as if you, you know it inside out. And of course, again, we're talking about ancient history. But back then, this was such a shocking change that it was very hard to believe what your eyes were seeing on a spectrum screen. Up until that point, I don't think anybody would have thought what they were doing was possible. And I saw it, and you know, I'd already done Jet Set Willie at this point. And <clears throat> I was already thinking about packing it in. And I thought, you know what? Getting jaded um, so soon. Yeah, well, it wasn't so much jaded. Yeah, actually, you're right. I was getting jaded uh, too soon. But then I saw this and I thought, okay, I've got to find a way of ripping this off. This is amazing. It's just back to basics again. How do I reproduce this effect? And that led to Chimera, which, you know, people still remember to this day. There's still loads of people in the industry who come up to me and say, yeah, I played Chimera. And for some reason, they liked it. Of course, I look back at it and think it was pants and <laughs> someone who makes games you always do. But there are these people who had these experiences um, back then and you know there's it's it's not a good idea to take that away from anyone no absolutely um so did you move on to to consoles because like i remember at the time like that was that was the real sort of sea change uh, in my youth of like the home computers were all well and good but the consoles were where you could get the the arcade perfect conversions of like 
Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat, even though they clearly weren't. They were much better than any of the computers could do. Yeah, I didn't move on to consoles um, from a programming perspective until the 90s. Uh, and uh, then just purely from a play perspective, like did oh, you? Oh, from a play? No, I was I was very much into the Amiga. So after the eight bit machines, I I absolutely loved the the Amiga. I mean, I'm, I loved the the arcade like games, um, even on the sixty four. But when it came to the Amiga, I think that was the first time you got really close to what's possible. Marble Madness, for example, it wasn't. It wasn't absolutely perfect, but it was close enough that you didn't care. Yeah, and and one of the games that came up a lot on the, the crib sheet that you sent through was was Speedball Two, which clearly had a profound impact. Speedball Two gave me RSI. <laughs> so so- I broke several joysticks playing Speedball Two, and it did give me RSI. That along with Sensible Soccer, um, playing those two, but. I think particularly Speedball 2 gave me RSI because the, the shock I would put through my forearm was was massive playing <laughs> that game. So where, where would you have been at this point? Are you still at home? Are you like What sort of age are you at with Speedball 2? And uh, who are you Speed playing Ball with? Two, Speedball 2, I, w- I was married at this point and uh, living in my own place. Um, and I was playing with, with friends who'd come over and and pounding them. Um, into oblivion <laughs> because I was really, really good at it. It's funny. I, up until recently, I was working at PlayStation, as as you might, as you might know. Yeah, you've um, come up on the show before, um, Shahid. Really? Yeah, uh, John Ribbins from uh, Roll Seven oh, and yes. Kirsty uh, from Future Lab have both uh, oh. name checked you as kind of being a big stepping stone on their careers. They're they're lovely people. Um, so at PlayStation, I worked with Lorenzo, and Lorenzo is one of the most fearsome game players I've ever met. And he he kicked my ass at absolutely any game. But we went to some, um, I think it was uh, a Eurogamer Expo uh, two or three years back, <clears throat> three years back, and they had Speedball 2 running in the retro section. I said, ah, here's a game I can beat you at. And we played, and I hadn't played in, what, 20-plus years? <laughs> and I'm very pleased to say I absolutely mullered him. <laughs> was it not like, did your arm not sort of twinge in anticipation? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, no, hang on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it was worth it. <laughs> um, so, like, that, that seems to be a big change. And you, you, you got married. Did your wife play games? Did she have any interest in games? Um. I really, really would rather not speak about my first marriage, if that's okay. <laughs> no, she hated video games. Was it a Speedball 2 thing? Was that is that the problem? No, no, let, let's not go there. Right, fair enough. <laughs> um, so so where, where did you go next? Like, were you still making games around this time? I was still making games. Um, I guess that's when... You know, the early 90s is when I started to play the Super Nintendo an awful lot. Um, you know, after, I guess, after loving Speedball 2 and Tarakan 2, lots of 2s in there, right? And Sensible Soccer so much on the Amiga. For for me, the next playing step was Super Nintendo and uh, Street Fighter 2 Turbo um, 
and Super Mario Kart. And th- these are the two games I think defined uh, the SNES for me. Oh, and I imagine for most people, like uh, a friend of mine was on the show last week and he uh, was talking about wherever he seems to live in his life, wherever he goes, someone always has a Super Nintendo and a copy of Street Fighter 2. It just, it's just one of those perennial things that everyone kind of has with them all the time. And I'm sure I've got one away in my loft somewhere. Yeah. So were you competitive with that? You seem a very competitive player. I was back then, and we are talking about a long time ago. Um, actually, I probably still am. If if I get down to it, I probably still do like that competitive aspect. Um, but yeah, I I played um, Street Fighter Two Turbo with my brother an awful lot. Um, I bought him a, a Super Nintendo and a copy of Street Fighter Two Turbo for one of his birthdays, actually, so that he could get some practice. And we had some epic battles. Um, there, there was one time when he came over to my place and I beat him 10 games in a row. Now, my, my brother's a profound uh, cusser at the best of times, but this was the worst of times. Uh, by the 10th game, <laughs> he was so angry that he threw the controller, walked out the room, I waited for him to come back. About 15 minutes later, I realized he'd walked out of the flat. He'd left. <laughs> he'd left after having got beaten. Um, and, uh, yeah, we used to play Sabutio when we were kids. And he used to hate me winning uh, and winning decisively. And I guess that's a big brother th- uh, the big brother thing, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and... I feel bad about it now. No, I don't feel too bad. I feel a little bad. Uh, <laughs> he didn't like go off to game. Japan to sort of play, like learn with Daigo and then come back to destroy it, you. Well, he did actually come back and destroy me at one point. Um, but, you know, I was magnanimous in defeat. He beat me 10 games in a row, maybe a year or so later. Um, I think there was a little bit of uh, mercy on my part as well, because I felt, you know, let, let's let's mend this bridge. Oh, now you're bit. just rubbing it in. <laughs> He's going to be furious listening to I'm this. Hoping, I'm hoping he listens to this. <laughs> I know. You know, joking aside, we we loved playing that game. We we loved playing fighting games, um, and we hated playing fighting games as well because it brought out the worst in us. You know. No, totally. Um, but I mean, but that, that's that's what it's about. You that's know, what, the, yeah, that's the pleasure of them. It's a fighting game, right? What do you expect? Exactly, exactly. So where... Had you kind of rediscovered a love of making games at that point? Or were you starting to think, like, what else What else can I do? <clears throat> at this point, um, I had stopped making games myself. I had started uh, making music. Oh, okay, cool. I, I, I had a band, and... Um, what was the band? This this is another thing that surprisingly has come up quite a lot. A lot of the devs yeah. I've spoken to all had like periods where they did music instead, and I think there's a lot of parallels between indie indie bands and indie devs. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, one of the things I used to do back in um, the early '80s was, well, as a teenager, as a young teenager, I, I really fancied 
playing the bass. And the reason I wanted to play the bass was because Sting played the bass. I was into the police. And I thought, it's a cool instrument. Let's give it a go. Most people go for the guitar. So give bass a go. So I got some cheap, crappy bass. It was awful. Um, and, you know, couldn't couldn't play it. But then when I started programming, I thought, well, let's get a decent bass. So I got myself a, a Squire Precision um, when I was, I don't know, 18, 17, 18, something like that. And I started to play that whenever I was waiting for a game to assemble because, you know, things took forever. You load yeah, stuff yeah. off set tape and while you're waiting for stuff to load after it's crashed, you'd have a lot of time. Or if you're assembling it, take time. And, and during that time, I would practice. So I would end up practicing hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a day, every single day. It would just never leave my lap. I'd have my arms over my bass while I was typing. My bass would always be in my lap. So I got pretty good at bass. And then eventually, and I loved music, so I always loved music. Um, I, I got more into that. And then what I, because obviously I, I didn't achieve chart success by any stretch. So the next thing I did was I started making music for video games. And that's how I got, um, eventually I got a, a job in-house uh, at uh, a company making music for video games. Okay, so what was the so, band first off? Like, we need to know about the band. <clears throat> the band never got anywhere, but it was called Life in the Bus Lane. And was this kind of probably, during the sort of, you know, 90s indie boom? Um, no, it was the late 80s. And it kind of petered off by about 1989, I think, 1990. I'm sure it was a lot we, of fun. Became, it was a lot of fun. It was wonderful. You know, we we recorded a proper demo recording studio and everything. We came very close to getting signed by Warner, um, by CBS, Um but but it wasn't to be, it wasn't to be. But then you started video game music. So what, like composing the whole thing, like not just like, yeah yeah yeah. I mean, I, I did a few demos, and um, people I I was working with put those demos out, and, and there are a few people saying this is the best stuff we've heard on on PC. It was for PC. So so I used the LAPC one. The thing I was doing differently, I was doing several things differently that a lot of people weren't doing at the time. I was using a guitar synth uh, to to play lines that needed to be more lyrical. Okay. So so I, I set the uh the pitch bend um to to an octave, which meant that when you did a pitch bend on the guitar synth or a slide it would sound like a fretless bass or a sax so it meant i was able to get fretless bass and sax into uh music uh and make it sound really authentic because you played in the style of that instrument a lot of people i think made the mistake of just using sounds that they thought sounded like the instrument but that's not how you make an instrument sound like another instrument um you you ape the style yeah and that's something rob hubbard was really good at you know he said it's not it's not the sound that you achieve, but the way that you play it. And he's absolutely right. That's that's how I went. And the other thing that really helped was my driver was really high resolution. Most people were running their drivers at uh, 50 frames, and I was running um, the 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 pitch bend part of my driver, the thing that tracked stuff like slides and vibrato and so on at 384 hertz. It was very very lightweight. 
um, but it meant that you got extraordinary uh, precision in in those slides and 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 in the vibrato, and it made the instrument sound really natural. And so, like, what 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 were some of the games you did music for? <clears throat> well, the demos that I did didn't eventually get used. Um, I wanted to keep those, but I did music for a bunch of Virgin games. Um, I can't remember which ones now. I think. Uh, Is that where you were working in house in Virgin? No, I wasn't working in house. This was okay, when okay. I was still contracting. This is before I ended up working in house. I was working in house at Bits, Bits Studios, a studio in North London. Before that, I was doing stuff for Virgin, uh, for for Core Design. Um, Jeremy's a lovely guy, so you know, did a few things and did. Did the music for Corporation, Heimdall, uh, or for Virgin. I, You know what? I can't remember what I did for Virgin. There were two or three things. I did the music for Floor 13 and Conflict. Uh, music for both of those was, was well received. A um, friend of mine, uh, David, did Conflict and Floor 13. So um, I'm trying to convince him to bring Floor 13 back because I think it would be a wonderful game to play in 2016. I don't know that I know that. I remember Heimdall. I remember thinking that was one of the prettiest games I'd ever seen at the time. Yeah, yeah. Core were very good at the pretty stuff. They were one of the first um, developers out there to do triple buffering um, for for videos, opposed to double buffering. So you've you, you've had the, you've really run the gamut with uh, with your your role, your various roles in video games. So how how did you end up at PlayStation? My life had fallen to pieces. <laughs> okay. That seems and, like a story we should cover, but... <clears throat> yeah, my life had fallen to pieces. Basically, um, I I was part of a startup. I, well, I, I founded a startup, got investment for it. Uh, the, game, the, the company was called Start Games. Um, how imaginative is that for a startup? <laughs> and... Uh, it lasted a couple of years. We got some funding from Telewest, and then Telewest pulled the funding after a couple of years. And it was a, a business model that was ahead of its time. Um, and you know when people say ahead of its time, they mean abject failure. So yeah, it was an <laughs> abject failure. Um, and that that fell to pieces. So from high-paying job to no money at all, uh, divorce, um, no job, uh, debt, my health problems started to go um, all over the place. So, you know, from from just managing type 1 diabetes to having a lot more issues with it than before. Uh, homelessness, pretty much everything that could go wrong. So how, how wrong. old are you when all this occurred? Uh, this would have been mid-30s, early 30s to mid-30s to late-30s. What a run like that that's crazy to that that journey is is amazing so so what were you just sort of thinking right well what can i do now yeah i mean life falls to pieces you become a consultant um, <laughs> so that's kind of what i did for a bit um did some web consulting for a little while not long um so i was i was teaching myself web tech and uh, i was doing videos uh, video playback on the web before YouTube, <clears throat> um, which means again I was an abject failure because if I'd been any good, I would have been able to to get that somewhere. Um, 
And this opportunity came out of the blue. One, one of my former bosses, Julian Lynn Evans, who is, I guess, as close to a mentor as I've got in this business. I love the man. He's just wonderful. And I hope he hears this because he's had a profound impact on my life in so many ways. So he approached me. <clears throat> he used to be my boss at Virgin. Um, yes, I did end up working there as, as well as freelancing for them. I, I yeah. was working at Virgin from 97 to 98. And he was my boss there. Anyway, he approached me out of the blue and said, look, there's this opportunity at PlayStation uh, in developer relations. Are you interested? And I thought, you know what, let's give it a go. Um, I don't know why I said that, but I think there was a, a part of me that thought, I'm not ready to, to quit this yet. I'm not ready for this to end. I'm not ready to throw the tackle in. Um, I've got more to give. And I wasn't convinced of that. It was almost as if I was trying to convince myself of that. Yeah, but I mean, so, you'd had the history, you know, like if, it, yeah, in terms yeah. of a developer relationship, you know, that's, you, you've been, you've had all the highs and lows of that. So of course, that, that seems a perfect fit. Yeah, you would have thought. I mean, I'd done development, I'd done publishing, I'd done uh, production, um, I'd done music, and the only thing that I hadn't done was platform. And and at first I got rejected, but then Julian went back to PlayStation and said, look, I think you're making a mistake. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they sent um, their toughest interviewer for the second interview. And the second time around, I breezed through it. I did absolutely brilliantly and got offered the job during the interview. And so that's how that started. And that was uh, back end of 2005. That's amazing. Um, like, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but like, when your life is, is falling apart, so to speak, do you find, or did you find comfort in video games? Was Or was that too, like, uh, the, the, these are the things that have caused this mess in the first place? Well, they hadn't caused the mess in the first place. No, but, you know, just um, the association of it, you know? No, no, I don't think so, because there, there were so many factors at that time. There was there were so many <clears throat> vectors to this um, life collapse. Um, so your love of games so, wasn't tarnished. You still no, found you joy know what? in I them. I did love games at the time. That's the interesting thing. You know, the, the reason I'm hesitating here is because this is a time I really didn't think much of video games. I thought they were. I thought thought they were in a bit of a a rut actually creatively you know this is the console dominance of playstation uh, playstation 1 playstation 2 i just thought they were getting a bit boring and i wasn't seeing much that excited me there was no pc at this point yeah you know things that i loved computers accessible computers that you could program you know walk into a shop buy a computer um buy yourself uh, some development software uh, bang something out, and you've got something done. You couldn't do that anymore. It was this um, closed shop, uh, high gates, and uh, pretty risk-averse environment. And I was, if I'm frank, I was sick of it. Yeah, there's it, the lack of kind of individual authorship and stuff. It's just huge corporations making products. Right. Yeah, it was a sausage machine. Yeah. That's a shame. That's a shame because, like, 
that's for a lot of people that's like that's when games went mainstream that's when you know everything fell into place that's when everybody started loving games yeah when they became a product yeah and not a passion so there was no sort of game so but of course then when you go to playstation you're you're coming in at this sort of the start of this indie renaissance which must have been very gratifying then no the indie renaissance didn't really capture anyone at playstation that was something that i i kind of um I mean, it, it was the thing that I was always interested in. And I was always trying to get that going. And I managed to kick off <clears throat> uh, some of it around about uh, 2009. But the, the, real, the real drivers behind the PlayStation business being more indie-focused at that time and the early stages before I started were uh, Murray Hume and John Booth. Yeah. Um, had it not been for them, the company wouldn't even have looked at this space. I don't think um, they started this thing called the minis program uh, for, for the PSP. And when I saw the deck for that before it was a thing, I said, I said to them, I want to be part of this. This is absolutely what I want to do. Um, so what was your role previous to that? Is it just literally like liaising between developers and Sony, basically? Yeah, your developer relations uh, with some kind of technical um, leaning. And and this is what really captured my attention, the, the whole mini thing. So I, I was then responsible for going out and finding developers and... Um, matching them up to this program and and then you know took it to to the next level with strategic content a few years later but uh yeah it it was it was wonderful that we had people like Murray and John who were able to to make something like this stick um in some sense with PSP i mean it it didn't become huge but it was definitely an eye opener for me yeah and the, 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 I mean, there must have been something in that 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 you find like a throwback to when you started. You know, this very exciting. Here's people literally making games in their bedrooms again. You know, like small teams. That must have been very exciting. Oh, hugely so. Um, and you know, I, I never really got away from that. It was, I think, it was March two thousand and nine when I went and saw Honey Slug. Um, who were working in this tiny office that's probably no bigger than my shed. In fact, probably slightly smaller than my shed. There were three of them. Um, and they were just so full of ideas and passion. And that woke me up to the idea that there were still people out there able to do this. And minis was something that could help bring bring their work more mainstream. Because what they were doing, they were doing in Flash. And of course, their their target market didn't really care that much how the stuff was being made. Mm-hmm. I just thought that with PlayStation, there was an opportunity of the whole, um, I guess, the whole environment in which games are being made could be as prominent, as important to the story as the games themselves. So the people who are making them, the way they make them, where they make them, and why they make them. I think these things were... were for me, as important as what they made. 
In other words, go behind the, the sausage machine um, and let's see what else the people who are behind the machine can make. And you were in a position eventually to, to start, you know, bringing people in directly and green lighting, you know, as I said, you've come upon the show before as being, you know, the guy who helped Oli Oli come out and um, Velocity 2X <clears throat> and stuff. It took six years before I, I was in that wonderful position. I think the the reason that happened was because whenever there's been some kind of when whenever there was a content problem at PlayStation, I'd be the first to put my hand up and say, "Listen, I can help you with this." So Minis was one example, but then further down the road there were other examples as well. There there were emerging markets. I helped um, with the Indian. Um, market when ps2 needed a bit of a life extension that worked quite well for us um but then there was playstation mobile there was a content problem there we basically didn't have any content for it um and and that's when me and lorenzo managed to do the impossible and get over 30 games for it in about six months nine months something like that. it was an impossible amount of time um and everybody else said it's never going to happen, and we just went ahead and did it. And the way we did it was we worked with independent developers, and that for me was was it. That was the opener. That was the thing I'd been waiting for mm-hmm. uh, for all of my time at PlayStation, and that was noticed at the highest levels. Um, I remember Andrew House in a meeting once when I was presenting something about a year after um, PlayStation Mobile had happened. He said. Um, he looked over at me and said, people in Japan will not forget what you did for PlayStation Mobile. If you're ever out in Tokyo, there's a dinner for you. And I thought, you know, these things do matter. They do have an effect and people do notice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the the way the PlayStation has kind of placed itself now. You know, it is, it is the home for indie games in, on consoles. Like, it's very much, you know, a huge part of last year's kind of E3, and I'm sure this year's was showcasing all the indie games that they're they're putting out on their platform well when i first said this at the beginning of 2012 to a full house in shoreditch developers looked at me like i was absolutely crazy but that was my dream it was to make i mean this that's exactly what i said said my dream is to make vita and this is at at the time vita was our problem child it's to make vita the natural home for independent developers and they're all looking at me like i'm absolutely nuts and a year later it was you know, 2012, I went to GDC, went to the um, IGF Pavilion, spoke to developers about why they weren't on PlayStation. I wasn't accusing. I was very respectful. I wanted to know how we could help them. Um, and some of them hadn't even heard of the Vita. I thought, well, we're screwed. You know, if they haven't heard of the Vita, that's a whole generation of game makers who don't care about PlayStation. Well, we've got to sort this out. So I went back, gave a pitch to... Um, the the management team and said, look, we need to fix this and this is how I think we can do it. And at that time, Vita had a problem with with not having any games, right? People had stopped making games for it from from a pretty good launch to three months after there were no games coming for it. And said, listen, this is how we fix it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that we can get 50 games in a year from a team of three. At that time, there were three of us. And I was shocked because I'd asked for a lot of money, but I'd, I'd given them a decent approach. 
Um, at that time, I was working with Robin and Lorenzo and Tony. You know, we're all magnificent. Tony was my boss at the time. And we put this thing together and went up and presented it. And really, I guess you got asked, they, what choice did they have? There weren't really an, uh, a lot of options. Yeah. But at the same time, they could easily have said, you know what, let's just cut our losses. But they didn't. They were bold. They were brave. They liked what they saw. I said, go ahead and do it. Um, and that was just wonderful. I mean, Robin was a very business-like, very professional guy. Um, and when I came out of that meeting, he high-fived me. And you can't imagine a guy like Robin high-fiving someone <laughs> over a professional thing. But it was it was a, probably the best pitch I ever gave. And um, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was wonderful. I wore my pitching suit for that as well. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they gave me the money. Said, Go ahead. And so, you know, we're talking about 2012 uh, GDC where nobody knew anything about PlayStation. And then GDC 2013 where Indie was enormous. And suddenly Adam Boys is on the scene because you've got to remember when I started this pitch, Adam wasn't part of PlayStation. Then he joins. He sees that we're bringing stuff to Vita and he promotes it massively. You know, th this entire range of stuff that we've got and he's highlighting stuff like uh luft browsers and hotline miami remember on this private event he pulls out his vita and says <clears throat> uh, hotline miami is absolutely perfect on vita and i started bandying about the expression best on vita which kind of stuck and that was the pitch i gave to developers your game might be okay on our ios might be okay on pc but it'll be best on vita and when the developers started to use that expression i knew that we got them um and we, we just worked our asses off, basically, you know. We we put them right at the center of everything that we did. And we built so much around what they wanted. We changed our, our processes. Um, we bent over backwards. We did what we could to support them in every single way. And it worked. That is wonderful. I'm so And, and it is better for everybody playing there. Like, I love all the indie stuff that comes out. It's, it's, it's why games are so exciting, eh? It's one of yeah, the reasons, I agree. You know, it's, it's I, I agree. I mean, you know, it's it's funny because I've always been a traditionalist when it comes to play. I mean, you've probably seen the list of games that I've played, and they're very traditional games, you know. Um, I like a lot of blockbusters, but I like the other stuff too. Um, I, I want to see the lifeblood constantly rejuvenating the business and players' imaginations. I want to see that always there. I never want to see that go away because without it, you're just going to have sausage factories and Stock Aiken and Waterman. I hope they'll forgive me. <laughs> well, I mean, as much as you're saying this, and I've been thinking this because I'm looking at the the games that you sent, one of the, the games that comes up a lot on your, your list is uh, Call of Duty, which is probably the, the poster child for, for the sausage factory. But it, nevertheless, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I say sausage factory... I love sausages. Exactly. Yeah. No. I know. I know totally what you mean. I, you know, they're, yeah. they're just awesome, aren't they? The perfect protein food, and they're <laughs> they're sizzling and crackling, and and they look good and they taste good. You don't want to know how they get made. You know, they get made by crunch and people's lives being broken. But um, let's skip past that um, carefully, shall we? Um, but they taste great. And and for me, Call of Duty: Modern Warfare, the first Modern Warfare. Is one of the greatest games ever made. A real step change, 
Um, I didn't really like the first three Call of Duties. I think maybe it was a modern setting that helped, but also the the technology. You know, Infinity Ward were just on top of their game, and um, I think I played that game every day for a year and a half. Were you good at it? Time. Oh yeah, yeah. I got very <laughs> good at it. So I, I, I didn't quite. You know, if you finished it, if you got to fifty-five or whatever, you'd wrap around. Hey, prestige. I, yeah, that was the one. So I did that, and then I got to 47 the second time round, um, and that's the point at which I stopped playing. But there was one level. You know the warehouse level in the extras pack? Uh, possibly. It was nuts. It was basically this enormous warehouse, and for some reason you still have helicopters flying over the top. But that was a level in multiplayer that I was best at, and I would frequently win that no matter what. You go in there. I love it when that level had come up in multiplayer <laughs> because it was utter mayhem. And that for me has always been the type of game that I'm best at when there's complete chaos. In fact, I'd say that's pretty much a story of my my strength in life is when there's chaos, I see a way through and I revel in it. And I kind of start <laughs> laughing, you know. Yeah, I can do this. I've done much tougher than this. Let's do it. Everybody else is freaking out and panicking and trying to apply process and there's there's me loving every moment of the flow of the madness and just finding a way through it. That is wonderful. Um, so you've now you've left PlayStation. And now you're uh, you've gone back to to development, which is amazing. Like what? 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 Why? <laughs> were you just were you kind of excited by all these new ideas? You're like, I oh, don't you know. I could take another crack at this. I never got over the fact that I got out of making video games. I was, I, I guess, I guess my calling, if you can call it that, was what I did at Strategic Content at PlayStation, um, helping to transform the image of PlayStation within the development community. I think that was my calling. But I think what I was made for, my purpose, was to make video games. And I've never really quite got over um, having left as early as I did the making of video games. And I always wanted to go back. It's a long, long um, uh, route back. And I thought, if I don't do this now, I'll never do it. And I was 50 last December. And I had a chat with, um, with Jim Ryan, who is one of my favorite people in the industry. Um, you know, PlayStation um, president in Europe. And he was really, really nice about it. You know, he understood. Obviously, he didn't want me to go, but at the same time, he, he got my perspective. He truly understood. Um, what he said to me was, well, you don't want to be 55, looking back, thinking, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done this because at 55, it's probably too late. I mean, a lot of people would say 50 is too late. What the hell is a 50 year old with a family and commitments doing going back to independent video game development? But, you know, I, I believe I can make a good fist of it. Um, have you, have you got like a notebook of, of, of game ideas that you've been kind of logging over the years? Yeah, I've got tons of ideas, but ideas and ideas mean nothing. Oh yeah, totally. You know, uh, the the point, especially is, with games, I think it's it's so hundred percent about the execution. 
Yeah, the amount of times people come to you, you know, when when you have money uh, to put into video games, and they say, "I've got this great idea, but I just need to get a team to do it." Um, and you you kind of smile sweetly and nod and next, please, because there are a lot of people who simply don't understand um, just what is involved in making a video game, and it is brutally hard. It is probably one of the hardest uh, creative endeavors there is. I mean, you know, talk about nailing jelly to a wall. This is like trying to nail multiple jellies to a wall while you're wearing ice skates on a <laughs> greased ice rink with uh, a couple of broken legs and Vaseline in your eyes. Um, it's not easy. I can't think of a more difficult creative endeavor. Making films is easier, I would say, because it's linear, um, but not just that, but it's a... I'm, I'm not trying to belittle films, don't get me wrong, but it's a linear medium, okay? Um, there are well-established principles, and there is a hundred years of prior art. With music, there are centuries, centuries, millennia maybe, of prior art, uh, well-established techniques and uh, methods by which you could improve. But we're talking about a medium here that's A, non-linear, and B, you know, probably younger than me. Yeah. And you have to, you know, reinvent the camera every time. Exactly. Are you sure you've made the right decision? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I've made the right decision. My only hope is I didn't make that decision too late. I don't think so. I think these things happen when they're supposed to happen. Um, it's not the only thing I'll be doing. I mean, I'll be doing writing. Um, I'll be um, doing public speaking. Um, I will be working with other developers, helping them to to grow their businesses, that kind of thing. But this is the thing that possessed me back in early 82, and I think this is the thing that I was born to do. So when can we uh, expect your first output? Um, I don't think it'll be too long, um, but also I don't think it'll be too great. It will be an experiment. You know, you've got to remember, I'm waking up from a coma. Um, I'm, I might have been a marathon runner back in the 80s, yeah, but even a marathon runner after a quarter of a century in a coma ain't going to run a marathon as soon as they wake up. They've got to go through rehab and get their muscles wired up to their synapses again and so you're train. in a training montage, basically. I'm in, yeah, I am. I'm in deep <laughs> training. I'm, I'm Rocky in the um, Snow Mountain Lodge. <laughs> the best training montage. <laughs> uh, that is very exciting. Um, I, th I think that is that is a perfect place to, to end it with the, this training montage and this expectation for the future. Um, if there's anything that we've missed that you wanted to bring up, then, then please do mention it, though. Hmm, good question. Um, we haven't talked an awful lot about uh, the video games that I've played, but that's okay, because I did most of my playing in the early years, and I've become, you know, I've become very much like a jaded A&R guy, in a sense, because I don't... In the same way that an A&R person doesn't listen to music, the same way that 
um, that a normal person does, you know, because they they analyze it, right? Mm -hmm. They break it down. Um, I, I don't look at video games the same way. I mean, I will look at a video game for a few minutes and I will make a judgment. And that's really cold. And I know people will look at me and say, no, you haven't played it through to the finish. Okay. But I seem to have done all right in terms of the, the judgments that I've made. Yeah, that is quite um, interesting, actually, because you had that, that role at Sony where, you know, you, you, you greenlit a lot of games, essentially. So what was there a specific thing that you're like, okay, this works, this is, this is going to be fine? I mean, obviously, it's going to be different for each game, but like, is there, is it like the way it makes you feel, or is it like what what is the the the, the it factor that certain games have? I, if there was a formula, anybody could follow the formula, mm -hmm. right? So there isn't a formula. What there is is a human filtering mechanism that is honed through decades of experience and practice. So I would say that unless that process is put through a person who's attached to that process, it's rather like doing a brain transplant. You know, the brain transplant might take, but until the brain's wired up properly to all of the nerve nervous system, um, it's not going to work. And by that time, you've got the same person as you had originally anyway. So I, I would say that the person is really, really important because that person is made of the experiences that they've gone through. I think what I'm trying to say is there is nothing special about me um, that knows how to um, spot a decent game. And that anybody who went through a similar long period of devotion to, to video games would come up with... Um, I guess, a good pitching filter. So, I, I mean, I can give you a couple of very quick examples. I mean, with so with Roll7's game, Oli Oli, they brought it into the office and they pitched us a couple of things and we just looked and, okay, maybe not, maybe not. But then they just put the device in my hands and I started playing and I carried on playing. And within 30 seconds... I knew that this was the basics, the beginning of an absolute hit. And really what you've got to do from that point on, okay, as a developer and as a potential funding partner, is make sure that you don't break the spell. Because the, the greatest thing for me in a video game is when you get somebody's attention very early on and then you never lose it. And Ollie Ollie was a perfect example of that. And I knew then that that John Ribbins was an emerging talent. And for me, one of the, the greatest talents in the video games industry uh, of the future. Same with, with Future Lab, really. Uh, they are exceptionally talented. Uh, James Marsden, for me, is um, possibly one of the best, again, possibly one of the best designers in the world, but then so is Kirsty. They make a really amazing team, yeah. you know, because they have both sides of the coin covered really, really well. And Velocity 2X for me was my game of 2014. But when I saw the first Velocity, it was on a Sunday, and I think I said something along the lines of a 40-something-year-old man shouldn't be spending hours playing a video game on a Sunday. But I knew then it was going to be really, really huge because they'd mastered um, this, this mechanical complexity 
that that nobody else had quite got the hang of and and they delivered it in a really seamless way it's different every time so i wish i could give you a formula i don't think there is one and i think if you'd put a completely different person in my place at strategic content it might still have worked it just would have been different yeah so i I felt like i cut you off when i asked you that question about the games thing but um the one more actually this is one that i always forget about asking but i think it's one of my favorite questions purely because i think it's so, so difficult for a game to do is um games that make you laugh like really laugh not like oh that's a clever line i'm gonna smirk a bit but properly barely laugh like that is funny it's so difficult for a game to do and i'm always interested to hear what people's experience of that is i think speedball 2 um was was one that made me uh, belly laugh. I'm, I'm sure there have been others, but Speedball too is just just wonderful. If you, if you were playing against somebody and you're giving yourself RSI by smashing a joystick to smithereens, you're putting as much into the game as the game appears to be putting into itself. And you see your opponent's forward, um, who you've been targeting mercilessly for a few minutes, fall to the floor and you hear the, uh, the siren... Um, uh, as, as a player is carted away. And, and you've both been engaged in this bitter battle, you and this other human player. And at the end of it, you're just exhausted, right? And then then you're just collapsing in a heap, laughing at what, what's just happened because you're as knackered as the person who's fallen on the floor and you feel like falling on the floor yourself. <laughs> so there was that one. Um, and then sometimes I think Gauntlet, I remember I loved Gauntlet in the arcades. And... You know, some one one of your mates, because four of you would go and play, and you'd have um, five pounds of ten p coins. And once your fiver was up, that was it; you were out, and you'd play for hours and hours and hours. But basically, it's, someone did something stupid, okay, and then they were suddenly surrounded by hundreds of uh, ghosts or whatever, or or death was approaching, and it was as a result of their stupidity. You just collapsed in laughter as ten <laughs> p's were devoured. You know, that was wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Lots of games have had that effect on me. I think collapsing, not just in in laughter, but in in joy and relief, uh, when me and my brother um, played co-op Silkworm and finally won. He was a tank, and when when we won that, when when we finished that, we were literally jumping up and down, screaming, high fiving almost crying because it was such an exhilarating uh, moment. Just wonderful that we'd done this together. I don't think I've ever finished a game in co-op mode with anybody before except that one. And it was just perfect. That is amazing. Did your brother still play games? Yeah, he does. But mainly um, mainly competitive games that he knows he can win. (laughs) He's been he's been taught by that Street Fighter lesson many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is that is amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I I think that's I think that's wonderful. I think I've taken up more than enough of your time. You're very welcome. <laughs>